0: Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we bow in your presence and we ask that the Holy Spirit of God would open the word of God to all the people of God. Speak, Lord, for your servants seek to hear. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Why in the wisdom of the church every Advent are we confronted with the figure of John the Baptist? Why? Every single Advent are we confronted with this figure of John the Baptist. Every year without fail, one image comes to mind in Advent. It's the image of the junior warden in the first parish which I served, which is now 30 years ago. It's very scary to say that. When I served my curacy in Sumter, South Carolina. And the junior warden at the time, a military man and a quite capable and very uh, wonderful man in many ways had a bugaboo about Advent. He simply couldn't stand the season and he couldn't stand it for one reason and one reason only and that reason was John the Baptist. And he would come to the rector and to me every single Advent and say the same thing over and over again. What is wrong with you guys? This John the Baptist guy is just a Debbie Downer. Christmas is joy to the world. And John is just, you brood of vipers, and it's no good. I don't like him. He doesn't make me feel good about myself. Can you please get rid of him? As if we had the power to do that. And yet every single Advent, every year, twice of the four Sundays, usually, we're confronted with this figure of John the Baptist. So we've got to ask the question, why? And I want to answer my own question with two points this morning. The first is it has to do with the standard, and the second is it has to do with where the standard takes us. So why John the Baptist? The answer is what is God's standard, and then where God's standard takes us. Now as we begin for just a second, let me try to sell you on the idea that how you see something has everything to do with the standard by which you evaluate it. You are always seeing through a lens. Everybody's putting on a pair of glasses. We all have our own prejudices. Everybody was feeling pretty good about the American education system this week until the results came out from an international exam. See, that's the thing about international exams. They don't just measure Americans against Americans. They measure American education against all all those other countries. And it was a real depressing report. There's been no significant improvement in the United States since the year 2000 in reading, that's 19 years, 2003 in math, and 2006 in science. Lovely. It gets better or worse. 30 countries, 30 count them, are higher than the U.S. in math. Well, there was a lot of grumbling. There was a lot of anger. There was a lot of concern that wasn't there before this exam came out. And I'm just talking about this week. But let me deepen the observation even further. What if you're not talking about measuring educational results? What if you're talking about measuring a culture? What if you're talking about this question? How healthy is a culture? I read a a remarkable article this week which had this as its frame of reference in regard to English culture. And the article asked this question, is English society healthy from the perspective of a family with a child that has Down syndrome? Just think for a second. Is English culture healthy from the perspective of a family with a Down syndrome child? The author of the article is Sally Phillips. She's a British actress. She's a comedian. For those of you who are Bridget Jones movie fans, she's in all three, among many other things. And her article is remarkable because it's about her experience as the mother of a Downs child. She begins it this way. I'm going to begin this story at the very beginning, the beginning of the story that started the journey that has led us here with the birth of my son, Oliver, who has Downs syndrome. It was August 2004. The moment of the diagnosis, 10 days after his birth, listen, the doctor said, I'm sorry, and the midwife cried. She goes on in this article to talk about what it's like to live in a society where pretty much everywhere she goes, everybody looks at her with pity and sadness the moment she walks in a room. They're all sorry. They're all remarkably accommodating because it just looks so bad and things couldn't be worse. She talks about a medical establishment which bends over backwards in every conceivable way to abort Down syndrome children in England all the way up to the end. She talks about articles that have appeared in her media about what a burden people with learning disabilities and other disabilities are to the rest of English society on the common economy because they cost so much more money. And she goes on and on and on like this. And then she says, she asked her team, the the family that she's gotten to know, and I bet you know what, what her family is. Her family is other families with Down syndrome children. That's where she's found her community. They're called Team Trisomy 21, which is the name for the chromosomal abnormality of Down syndrome. And she asked these families this question, what do you love most about having a Down syndrome child? Listen, these are just some, some of the answers. She values everyone equally. What you see with him is what you get. He loves much, forgives quickly, and laughs a lot. She is always ready to wipe your slate clean. His sense of humor and his taste in music is amazing. He is deeply compassionate and sensitive to people. My son is enthusiasm personified. My daughter is nothing but positivity. Unquestionably, the comedy value of Ava's honest reflections on life and her unfiltered questioning of those around her. She's the funniest person we know, sometimes intentionally, other times unintentionally. For me, it's Hazel's uniqueness. She knows what she wants, and she's nobody's fool. Our son finds joy in everything he he sees and does. And I could go on and on. All over her life, she's got people telling her it's wrong, it's sad, the midwife's crying, the doctor's sorry, everyone in the grocery store is sorry, everybody's sorry everywhere she goes except this group of people. And when she puts a lens on British society from the perspective of families with Down syndrome, all of a sudden, it's very unflattering, the picture that you get. So here's the question. What is our standard as Christians for human beings? Now, with that question, if you'd be kind enough to turn the Old Testament lesson, I promise it's in there, Isaiah 11. We're going to look at the verses 2 and 3. And we're going to look at... Isaiah 11 verses 2 and 3 from the perspective of this question, what is God's standard for human beings? So we're not talking about measuring education and we're not talking about measuring a culture. We're talking about measuring God's expectations for human beings. And we get in this passage a magnificent description of the messianic figure. This is one of the most beautiful, succinct, And terrific portrayals of the character of Christ anywhere in the Bible. You hear a lot about Christ. You hear about the miracles of Christ and the teaching of Christ and the glory of Christ and the cross of Christ and the death of Christ, and I could go on all morning, but very rarely, especially in Western churches, do you hear about this. What about the character of Christ? What was it like to be around him as a person? Well, in this passage, you have the heart of who he is. And we know this to be the case because when it says in Isaiah 11, verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, this is the very book of the Old Testament, Isaiah later in 61, when in Luke 4 in the synagogue, the, the passage is read in the synagogue, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news, to set at liberty the captives. And that he says to the congregation that's gathered in the synagogue, he says, truly, this day, this passage has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus sees himself as the fulfillment of this messianic figure in the book of Isaiah. We know that from the Gospels. And this is the beginning of the introduction of this figure. And it is a beautiful description of the character of Christ. Now there's more. This passage is the source for one of the beautiful traditions for us as Christians. It's called the sevenfold gift of the Spirit. It's usually more associated with Roman Catholicism than Anglicanism. And we don't need to get into all the Roman Catholic parts this morning, but what you do need to know is in this passage, there are seven characteristics that are descriptive of this figure. And I want to look at them each in their turn. As I begin, I want to make sure that you understand something that I didn't understand as a young Christian when I first came to this passage. Even I can count, and if you look at your text and go through verse 2, you'll see, you see where I am, verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon me. And here we go with the seven characteristics wisdom and understanding. Everybody see where I am? That's two. Counsel and might, that's three and four. Knowledge and the fear of the Lord, that's five and six. Well, even I can count. That's six. How come everybody talks about the sevenfold gift of the Spirit? It used to drive me crazy. There's only six in the English text. How come everybody talks about seven? Uh, without going far afield, the Greek translation of the Old Testament and then the, the Latin translation of the Greek translation of the Old Testament both translate the phrase fear of the Lord at the beginning of verse 3 and the one at the end of verse 2 differently. The fear of the Lord at the end of verse 2 they use the word piety to translate, and the fear of the Lord at the beginning of verse 3, they use the word fear of the Lord to translate, or wonder and awe. So if you're with me, the the one at the end of verse 2 is different than the one at the beginning of verse 3. The one at the end of verse 2 is piety, and the one at the beginning of verse 3 is fear of the Lord. If you do it that way, you get seven. Everybody with me so far? Now let me just say a word about these seven for a second. Just go through the list and think for a second. Wisdom, the gift of wisdom, what does it mean to be wise in character and to live as a wise person in God's world? It's a beautiful Hebrew word. It's a word that comes from woodworking and metalworking and stone masonry. It literally means skill in Hebrew. And the idea of this word is not you're carving out of a rock or you're carving uh, an artwork or you're carving music, but you're carving a life. And the idea of this word in Hebrew is literally skill in life. In other words, if you look at somebody's life who's got wisdom, you look at what they do and how they live and what they value and how they feel and how they pray, and you say, that's beautiful. That's be- how did they know how to do that in that situation? That's beautiful. It is a skill in life to know when to speak and to know when not to speak. To know when to speak loudly, to know when to speak softly, to know when uh, to to sleep and when, when to laugh and all these things. It's a tremendous word about experiencing life and going through it as if you're navigating seamlessly as anyone with great skill would do in an artwork or anything of the kind. And if you think about Jesus's life, that's a great way to think about it. The man's full of wisdom. He's just always doing the right thing. He's always coming up with the right word. He's always coming up with the right image. And I've only just begun. Secondly, understanding. In understanding, you comprehend how to live as a follower of Christ. You're not confused by the conflicting messages that the culture sends to you. You are entirely clear. And say what you want about Jesus. What you've got to say is this. The man who in Luke 9 sets his face to go to Jerusalem and doesn't get to Jerusalem until Luke 19 does it because he's clear about what God's called him to do. And that's what this word understanding means. It means clarity about the call of God in your life. We heard a great testimony in adult Sunday school from our missions team that went to Nigeria talking about of Father Mark. And one of the many things that was clear from that is Mark has understanding about what God's call is on his life, about what he is to do, which is why he's such a holy man. It is a gift. It is a powerful thing. And Jesus had it in spades, and I've only gotten through two. Counsel means right judgment. It is a sort of supernatural intuition to know the difference between the surface and the interior, between apparent right and wrong. It's Jesus out there with a woman at the well and everybody in the town isn't with her. She's out there in the middle of the day by herself because she's got a scarlet A on her because she's the Hester Prynne of the New Testament. For those of you who are Nathaniel Hawthorne people and Jesus says, go get your husband. And she says, I I don't have a husband. He says, you're right, you don't have a husband because you've been through a whole bunch of husbands and the guy you're living with now is not your husband. And she's pathetic. She's a serial adulterer and she's ostracized and she's got nothing to offer and none of us would put her on the vestry and nobody would visit her and we wouldn't give her the time of day. And Jesus not only gives her the time of day, he sees underneath all these casual sexual encounters a thirst for God which has awesome potential and she literally becomes an evangelist for an entire village as a result of the right judgment of Jesus, seeing beyond her outward appearance to her heart and her spiritual potential. Wow. Fourthly, might or fortitude. Not just simply courage, but perseverance. A person with fortitude is willing to stand up for what is right, says one writer in the sight of God, even if it means rejection, verbal abuse, or even physical harm and death. This is the virtue of the martyrs on whose shoulders we stand. And Jesus is the ultimate martyr. And this is fulfilled most powerfully toward the end of his life where he's bounced back and forth like a ping pong ball. And all the time he's got opportunity after opportunity to get himself out of trouble. And he keeps telling the truth. And he keeps telling the truth. And he keeps going to the cross because the Father has called him to do it. And he won't not do it. Even though he's being rejected and pelted and treated unfairly, he goes and he goes and he goes. That's fortitude. That's courage. It is strength and perseverance in life with clarity. Knowledge. I made it to number five. You all see where I am? The spirit of knowledge. One writer says this, it allows us to perceive the greatness of God and his love for his creatures. It's a very wonderful, wonderful word. I sometimes ask people uh, who made humor, God or the devil? And they sort of look at me funny. But Jesus laughed a lot. And Jesus had a joy of, of life that was very, very profoundly deep. And a lot of the art shows that. And the reason that Jesus had a lot of joy in life is he understood what a gift life was and what a gift life with the father was and this word is about the the ability as a as a seeing with the eyes of the heart person to live with joy and gratitude for the wonder of all that god is and all that god's world means i think of the prayer book uh, phrase the joy and wonder of all your works that's a great image for what knowledge is and then to finish up with the last two Piety is the gift of reverence, uh, the deep respect for God, which brings with it humility and trust and love. Early in the morning, a great while before dawn, Jesus went off by himself to a lonely place to pray in Mark's gospel. And when I think of him out there every morning, and he was there every single day with his father by himself, I think of this word piety. He's, with, he's in reverent awe as a position of reception, asking the question, Lord, what do you have for me to do today? Where do you want me to go today? What do you have to teach me today? The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, it says in Isaiah 50, that I might know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. There is a reverence that Jesus carries with him for God and for the Father all the way through his entire life. And finally, Wonder and awe, that last phrase, the fear of the Lord. The Pope actually preached on this in 2014. And I looked it up. He said this, he said, This is no servile fear, but a joyful awareness of God's grandeur and a grateful realization that only in him do our hearts find true peace. That's very beautifully stated. A joyful awareness of God's grandeur and a grateful realization that only in Him do our hearts find true peace. Now, this one is a little bit different and subtly so from the knowledge that I talked about earlier. Knowledge is this grateful awareness of God as Creator and the world that He has made. This one is a joyful sense of the importance of God Himself in your innermost being and a grateful realization that in the midst of all these blessings, the core of the blessing is to be with God and to be God's forever. And that is what this last one means, beautifully stated. It's not a filial fear. It's not a servile fear. It is a joyful awareness of the grandeur of God and being centered in God and the importance of being centered in God. Now you take, brothers and sisters, all seven of those characteristics And you ask yourself this question, please. Is this you? See, we don't think this way. I only have two points this morning, and the first has to absolutely really throttle us. We have a big problem in this country, and the problem is we don't understand what human beings are for. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This is God's standard for humanity. This is what God wants. You and I are not human beings. We're apologies for human beings. If you want to know what God wants from human beings, look at the life of Jesus. One of the great statements about Christ is, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. And who is the human being who is God's model for being fully alive? Jesus the Christ. Question, if you measure your life against the life of Christ Portrayed with a character like that, with that level of wisdom and understanding and piety and reverence, how can you possibly feel it's okay? As one person has said, if I'm okay and you're okay, what's that guy doing up there on the cross? Yes, precisely. So here's the answer to my question in my first point. Why is John the Baptist in Advent? Here's the reason. It's because without John the Baptist... Christmas doesn't make any sense. John is out there in the wilderness eating locusts and wild honey and praying. And John gets a sense, an an irrevocable inner sense that the God who made the universe is actually going to show up in history. He actually believes that in his lifetime. So when he's out there by the Jordan, what he's saying is, Actually God's gonna come, in which case we better prepare. So ask yourself this question. You're in a it doesn't work for Americans. You're in a you're you're in a society like England where they actually appreciate royalty and the monarchy, okay? And you just get a phone call, random phone call one day, and the phone person then, the phone, the queen is coming over for dinner in four hours, click. Now just hypothetically. Okay, so now what happens? Well, you only get four hours. You're in England, right? I mean, they have a tremendous sense of reverence for authority and for the monarchy. The queen is coming to. What does the? What does the? I mean, everything goes bonkers. Every piece of dust goes out of the house. The finest silver. I mean, they're every possible. Four hours. I need four months. Right? Why would they do that? Because the queen's coming to my house. So why is he out there saying you brood of vipers? Because he's a Debbie Downer? No, because he's telling the truth. Because he's right about who's coming. And he's right about what's necessary to prepare. Christmas comes to sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's in those Christmas hymns. Hark the herald angels sing, verse 3. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Why did Christmas necessary? Because he has to be born to die. Because you and I deserve to die. Because we fall massively, massively, massively short of a character that God wants that looks like this. These seven portraits, these seven characteristics. A character that looks like the character of Christ. No wonder John is so upset. So the first thing I've said is, it's about the standard, and if you use that as a standard, brothers and sisters, and you don't think you fall short, you need to talk to me after the service, (laughs) because you're in denial, and it's not a river in Egypt, all right, you're all together, and then the second thing is very simple, it's where the standard takes us, what happens when you really reflect on a passage like Isaiah 11, when you really think about the character of Christ, when you think honestly about the nature of your life, when you think about the beginning of the liturgy when it says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself. These are the first two commandments and on the law and the prophets all these hang. This is the most important thing. So if you want to know what the standard is, just love God and your neighbor every single day, every moment of the day, every day this week. And if you believe that you did that last week, I still want to talk to you after the service. It's a mess. So we need a remedy. We need a way out. You can't just have John the Baptist. If you just have John the Baptist, you've got a big problem. Why? Because it, 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 it creates a problem it can't solve. The evangelist Fred Brown uses three images to describe the purpose of the law. First, he says, it's like a dentist's little mirror that he sticks into the patient's mouth. I hated the dentist growing up, but you know what I'm talking about, right? It's a little mirror, especially I don't use them much now, but to detect any little cavities. He doesn't drill with it. He doesn't use it to pull teeth. It can show the decayed area or abnormalities, but you don't fix somebody's teeth with a mirror. It shows the problem. It doesn't solve it. He says you could also think of it like a flashlight. If suddenly the lights go out, you use the flashlight to go down to the darkened basement. You go to the electrical box. It doesn't work in South Carolina because there's no basements. But anyway, stay with me. When you point it toward the fuses, it helps you see that one is burned out. But after you remove the bad fuse, what you don't do is put the flashlight in its place. You put in a new fuse. You don't solve the problem with the flashlight, but the flashlight points out the problem. And the last image, he says, is a plumb line. When you're a builder and you want to check your work to see if it's weighted correctly, if it's truly vertical, you use a plumb line. But if you have a problem and it's not correct, you use a hammer and saw to correct it, not a plumb line. So he says, think for a second. It's like a mirror. It's like a flashlight. It's like a plumb line. The problem with God's standard, if you only think about God's standard, is it creates a problem it can't solve. All right. If you look in a mirror and you see yourself dirty, That's not good news, but you can scrub yourself, brothers and sisters, with a mirror from here to kingdom come, and you're not going to get any cleaner. So we need a solution, and the solution is the cross of Christ. The solution is the Christmas child who was born to die. It all goes from John the Baptist through Christmas all the way to Good Friday and Easter. One last story, then I'm done, from England, from a coal town. I've always liked this story. It makes me think of a the images of John Wesley early on in the the great 19th century revival when the Anglican church kept kicking him out because he was too enthusiastic. And you'd see John Wesley out in these fields in these wonderful paintings preaching to these miners in the middle of the day, you know, beautiful sunny day, incredibly dark miners covered with coal in the middle of the day on their lunch break and John Wesley was preaching to him. It was the only way he could get a congregation because the Anglicans kept kicking him out. Anyway, this is about a preacher in a coal town, and what he would do, which I love, is at noon he would go down actually into the mine during lunch break and share the gospel with the miners. And this is one such day and one story about what happened to him. So he met the foreman on the way back to the shaft, which was going to take him back up. And he asked the foreman, being the kind of evangelist that he was, he said, So what would you think of what I shared? Because what he made clear was, God has a standard. It's a very high standard. You don't meet it. You need to have the blood of Christ. Christ died in your place. You need to trust Christ or you're in big trouble. And it's purely free grace. And God loves you more than life itself. And you can't imagine how good news the good news is. He said, what would you think? And the foreman says, it's too cheap. I cannot believe in a religion such as that. So the preacher, without making a direct, immediate reply, looked at the foreman for a second. He said, let me ask you a question. How would you get to this place? And he said, I just got in a cage. That's the way you get up and down. And uh, he said, how long did it take to get to the top? And the foreman said, "Uh, not very long, only a few seconds. And the preacher said, well, that's very easy and simple. Let me ask you another question. Do you raise yourself up the shaft? And the foreman said, no, you have, to be, you have to be hauled up by the other guys. And then the preacher said, well, let me ask you another question. Is, was the shaft very easy to put together, or was it challenging and expensive? And the foreman said, uh, that's a good question. <laughs> the shaft is 1,000 feet deep, and it was sunk at great cost to the proprietors, but it's the only way we can get out, and without it, we should never be able to get out to the surface. And the preacher looked at the foreman and he said, you just answered your own question, buddy. You just answered your own question. When God's word says, whoever believes in the Son of God has everlasting life, and you say too cheap, you forget that God's work to bring you and others out of the pit of destruction was accomplished at vast cost. It only looks cheap because you're not thinking the way God thinks. Think deeper. Think about what's around you. Realize that you get in the cage, taken up by others, and it was a very expensive cage, and realize that's just an image of the cross of Christ. It may look free, but it's not cheap. It's very expensive, but it's still free. Boom. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And that's what John is for. John drives us straight to the cross, straight back into the loving arms of Christ, and straight back to the reminder that grace is expensive and free. And we have it in Jesus Christ, our Lord. You all with me? As we are seated, let us pray. Lord, thanks for John the Baptist and his bold willingness to tell the truth. Please help us to hear the truth about ourselves this morning, that we are broken sinners, that we fall so far short of your hopes, and expectations for us as human beings. And yet you loved us enough to take our place, to meet the standard we could never meet on our own, and to give us the free grace of the gospel. And whereas the law says do this and live and gives us no feet and no arms, the gospel says you can fly and it gives us wings. Lord, enable us this morning to be grateful for the wings of the gospel given through the cross and the Holy Spirit and enable us to really rest in that knowledge, the gift of knowledge of the Holy Spirit, that we belong to you, and that the heart of life is to enjoy God forever. In Jesus' precious name, amen.